0: Last time I was here on uh, Christmas Day, we had taken a break from our studies in Luke, and we looked at uh, John 3.16 a little closer, and I have to confess to you that uh, I was somewhat glad we did in light of some of the deep waters that we've been wading through here in Luke chapter 12. We've been uh, confronted by our Lord over and over again throughout the 12th chapter, uh, which is a pretty long chapter with such things as uh, being rich in God and not in our possessions, casting our, our cares away from this world and longing for heaven, being ready for our Master's return, which can come suddenly and unexpectedly. We are confronted with considering the high cost of discipleship and faithfulness to Christ that could cost even the most intimate of relationships, even that between a parent and a child. And if we were to really boil all that down, our Lord has called on us to repeatedly to reorient our focus and reorient our priorities in every aspect and every facet of our lives and bring them into subjection to Him. These were some weighty but albeit necessary things for us to know and learn and apply from the lips of our Lord Himself. And so I think it was good for us to take a little time here and and be reminded of the depth and the magnitude of the love of God demonstrated in the gift of His Son from John 3.16. But as we come back to our text in Luke this week, our Lord is again calling for us to come to grips with our own mortality. And that's really our Lord's lesson for us here this morning in these five verses in Luke chapter 13. It's a very simple, very straightforward text with a very practical application. And so I want to read our text together straight away if we could. If you're there with me in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1, I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. God's word says this in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, they were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Father, just let these words this morning be as instructive to us as they were when you first spoke them. Let us not hear these words and then walk away and forget them like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. But Lord, help us to apply what we hear today so that we may be more conformed into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. With uh, little else to compare it to, one of the single greatest times of spiritual revival in the Americas had to be during the 18th century in what has become known as the Great Awakening. In fact, it has sometimes been called and referred to as the Second Reformation. But nothing since that time comes even close to the spiritual fervor and the intense time of spiritual revival that was born out of a little town in the new colonies known as Northampton, Massachusetts. It was there that we can track down a series of messages that was preached in December of 1734 that shot out of the pulpit like a lightning bolt into the hearts of its listeners bringing conviction and repentance. And as the Spirit of God moved throughout the land, it would spread far and wide throughout New England and up and down the Connecticut River Valley, causing a great many people to begin confessing sin, repenting of their wicked ways, and returning back to the Lord. Miraculously, it didn't even hit its high water mark until about seven years later, in 1741, when a certain pastor in Enfield, Connecticut, noticed that his particular congregation seemed to be dull and and hardened to what was going on around them. His church had no zeal, and they were really apathetic to the work of God that was obviously moving throughout the land. And his idea was to look to the source and summon the preacher from Northampton, Massachusetts, to come to his church and preach directly to his flock just to see how gospel-hardened they had actually become. It would be in the summer, on a Wednesday, on July the 8th, 1741, that the preacher from Northampton, Massachusetts, would arrive and come to the First Church of Christ in Enfield, Connecticut, to deliver a message to this congregation that would result arguably in one of the most famous sermons preached outside of the Bible itself. The text for that day would be from Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five, which says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. That message was titled None Other Than Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it was delivered by the man known as the last of the great Puritans, Jonathan Edwards. According to historians, Account of this particular event, Edwards wasn't even able to finish the sermon because of the cries and the moans of the congregants that fell under such conviction over their sin that day that they were yelling out, What must I do to be saved? Men would fall to their knees before God. Women were wailing in hysteria. And the impact of that sermon would reach far and wide all throughout New England. Some to all-out hardening and rejection, while others in great numbers would genuinely live and seek to live lives pleasing to the Lord. Now, Jonathan Edwards' legacy would move far beyond that day and even far beyond his very life because when his life was examined in the 20th century, looking back some 200 years after his life and death, his descendants became like a who's who of distinguished American citizens. Listen to this remarkable lineage that Jonathan Edwards left. From his lineage, his children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and so on, one Vice President of the United States, one Comptroller of the United States Treasury, one Chaplain of the U.S. Senate, three U.S. Senators, three State Governors, three mayors of large cities, eight holders of major public offices, 14 presidents of universities, 30 judges, 60 authors of good books, 60 physicians, 110 lawyers, 120 college professors, and more than 300 clergy, missionaries, and theological professors." It's hard to imagine anyone else who had such a lasting impact and contributed so greatly to the foundation of this nation and its spiritual vitality than this towering giant of the Christian faith. But what was it that motivated this man? What was it to drive him to preach in such a way as he did and to rear up his 12 children and his 33 grandchildren in such a way that he would have such a, a monumental impact on this world, surely we could look at his seventy resolutions that he wrote by himself at the age of eighteen, just one year after becoming a Christian. It's a remarkable thing if you've never read them. But most likely, we can boil it down to this one simple prayer that he prayed, and that prayer was this: "O oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs." Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. In other words, what Jonathan Edwards was asking God was that he be granted to see every single thing that he did in this world, and to look on every relationship that he had and that he engaged in, and to see every soul that he preached to and pastored to be viewed through the lens of eternity. He didn't ask for spiritual glasses, which he could take on and off and maybe sit down and lose somewhere. But he prayed that eternity would literally be emblazoned on his eyes so that at the moment he awoke until the time that he laid down to go to sleep, everything in his life would be done and viewed in consideration of eternity. And when I mean everything, I mean every single Whether it be in his preaching, whether it be in his teaching, his fathering, his relationships, his own suffering, his spiritual life, his use of time. Even such mundane things as his eating and drinking for the day. Edwards wanted to do everything in such a way that no matter what it was, heaven was in view. No matter if he was about to live his last hour on this earth... His spiritual eye was riveted on eternity. He looked towards the heavenly city whose builder and maker was God. What would change in your life if you started to look at everything in light of eternity? Would you live any differently than you do right now if you knew that you were standing on the doorstep of the everlasting? Would you spend your time here on earth any differently? Would you talk to your family members or your coworkers any differently? Would you parent any differently? Would you spend your time today any differently if you knew for certain that your death was tomorrow? What would change in your life if you would pray, Oh God? Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Help me, O oh God, to see beyond this world. What would happen in your life? Well, that's what Jesus has been pleading and teaching us to do, all throughout chapter 12 and now into 13. He's been laying his card out on the table to this massive crowd that's surrounding him, along with the disciples, and that he's not here to be their political revolutionary. He's not here to be their social justice warrior. But what he's here to deal with is the most solemn and the most important things in their lives. He's here to deal with that which matters most for them and for every single one of us here in this room today, and that is your soul for all of eternity. He is exhorting us to stamp eternity on our eyeballs. He's he's admonishing us to put the life to come before our very minds and our very hearts because there is not a single one of us here in this room who knows when that time will come. And so he uses a couple recent tragedies for his hearers to drive the point home. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 13. It says, Now on that same occasion... There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, as we mentioned, this discourse of our Lord, it started in chapter 12, verse 1, and it's going to go all the way through thirteen nine. So this is the same place, same group of people that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. This is the same occasion. But here someone brings to our Lord this gruesome story. It's a story that we don't have any other details uh, about except what's presented right here. Only Luke records this for us, and no other historian outside the Bible has anything to say about it. Now, that really shouldn't concern you as to its validity or its historical accuracy because we don't have this specific event recorded for us anywhere else, but we know from other events around this time that the character and nature of such a horrific event It's not that much out of line. For example, Archelaus, he slew 3,000 Jews in 4 B.C. 6,000 Jews were murdered by Alexander Janius in the early part of the 1st century B.C. And according to Josephus in his Jewish Wars and Antiquities, we know that the Jews were massacred in connection with trying to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem about this same time. So the fact that there's no other historical record for us of such an account should not necessarily concern us. It's not out out of line with the times at hand. And it's definitely not out of character with Pontius Pilate. He was brutal. He was a merciless governor over the Jews. In fact, when he was appointed by Tiberius in 26 AD, He intentionally marched his Roman troops into Jerusalem, carrying their standards, which are these flags with these emblems on it on a pole, right? And he marches into town with images that he knew the Jews would see as blasphemous and uh, idolatrous. And then what he did was he threatened to kill anyone who protested or complained about it. He even stole money from the temple treasury and then they beat and he killed anyone who protested his doing so. He was cruel, and he was a violent ruler during this time. But apparently, this recent event, it was the talk of the town. And and rightfully so. Here you have some Galileans who they've come to the temple to offer their sacrifice. And, And the temple would have been the only place that this would have happened. And more than likely, it was done over Passover, because this is the only time that they would have come from Galilee to do so. And so as they go to offer their sacrifice, the Romans kill them. And their own blood is spilled and it's mixed with their sacrifice's blood. And so what you have is a supposed holy day with a sacred act, which is supposed to be a solemn time of worship. And Pilate comes in here with these soldiers and he desecrates it all by killing these Galileans. What was supposed to be sacred has now become sacrilege. We can almost sort of compare it to the events that happened almost about a year and a half ago in South Carolina. A young man came into the church, and he attended an evening Bible study for the first time. And he pretended that he was interested in what they had to say and learning about the Bible. And then during the time of prayer, he pulled out a gun, and he killed nine of the people there. It's a horrific event. It's an event that we have a hard time understanding and comprehending the depth of the hatred and the amount of evil that would motivate someone to do such a thing. And yet here we have something that is just as shocking in nature. Galileans worshiping God, confessing sin, offering sacrifice to the Lord, but they are killed in the most holy of places. But there's a problem in the crowd's view of these murders. There's something amiss in their thinking about the whole situation. They didn't need a correction about the wickedness of Pilate. They all knew that he was murderous, he was cruel, he was a horrid ruler. That much was true. Their focus wasn't necessarily so much as to how great a sinner Pilate was for committing these atrocious acts, but rather in their mind, the Galileans, these Galileans must have been the ones to blame for this. And they're thinking bad things happen to bad people. And these people, they, oh, they had to be the worst kind of sinners for something so horrible to occur to them. We know that this is their thinking when Jesus asks the question in verse 2, where it says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? In other words, what Jesus was asking this crowd was, do you think that this act, this event, was caused by the Galileans' deep sin? Do you think that they got what they had coming to them? Did God allow this to happen to them in order to make a point that they were exceedingly sinful? Well, it is true that God sometimes brings calamity and even death to sinners for a specific sin, it's not always the case. There was Nadab and Abihu in Numbers chapter 4 who offered strange fire in their worship and it says that they died before the Lord. There was Uzzah in First 1 Chronicles 13.10 who touched the Ark of the Covenant when the ox upset it and yet God struck him dead. Even in the New Testament, we have Ananias and Sapphira and his wife there in Acts chapter 5, who lied to the apostles about their offering. And Peter said to Ananias, he said, You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And then three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in and she tells the exact same lie. And she fell down dead. As well, We have Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, who was struck down by an angel of the Lord because he did not give glory to God. So there are some cases in the Bible in which God's judgment is swift and decisive. But it's not always the case. It's the exception, not the rule. And it's certainly not the case here. Because Jesus answered their question emphatically and says to them in verse 3 He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus looks at this crowd. He tells them, Your theology about death and life is totally wrong. Your theology about sin, suffering, and judgment is not accurate. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, He said, For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Bad things happen to what we would call good people and bad people alike. The righteous and the wicked suffer alike at the hands of evil men all the time. If you look at the prophets... You look at the apostles. Read Hebrews chapter 11, where it says that some of the faithful of God, they were scourged, they were stoned, they were put to death with the sword, and some were even sawn in two. And all that, ladies and gentlemen, all of that was done at the hands of evil men, not too much unlike Pilate. There was this little book out a number of years ago, that you may have seen at the grocery stores and on the uh, book racks and those types of things, And it was called, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? There's a problem with that title. And the problem is this. There are no good people. We are all sinners before a holy God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and our hearts are desperately sick and more deceitful than anything else, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says it. But what Jesus does tell him is this. He says, rather than looking to point your finger and figuring out who is to blame for this tragic death, you need to be thinking about your own sin and punishment and what it deserves. Rather than to come to the conclusion that these Galileans must have done some secret sin and they're rightly receiving their just punishment of death for it, why don't you stop looking and start at them and start looking at your own lives and your relationship with God and get right with Him? And that's really the flip side of what Jesus is trying to correct here. In essence, He's saying to them, you are not still on this earth because you are morally superior than these Galileans. Things aren't necessarily going smoothly for you in your life because you and God are just in sync with one another. Because, ladies and gentlemen, how easy is it for this line of thinking to kind of creep into our own minds? How quickly are you, do you compare yourself and your family and your children to everyone else when something bad happens to them or you see a, a kid go wayward or do something uh, that they shouldn't and then you look at your own kids and your own family and you think to yourself, we haven't done any of that. I must be doing something right with God. I'm doing my part. God's doing his part. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and God's doing what he's supposed to be doing. We start to compare sins, and we think in our minds that we are better than that family over there or that person over there because we've never done such a thing. Or that has never happened to us, and we must be doing the right things, and the next thing you know, you are starting to celebrate yourself and instead of thanking God for His mercy, that it hasn't happened to your family, within your very own your heart, you have sprouted up pride. When you start to think in your mind, because I did this, and because I did that, instead of saying, God, who is rich in mercy and in His abundant grace, has spared me from such a thing, you might be stumbling into pride. And so Jesus is offering up a correction. He's offering a correction to his hearers in that they need not look at those who suffer such a fate from a moral high ground. But on the contrary, they need to examine their own hearts before a holy God and think about their sin and their punishment. But then Jesus offers up a recent event of his own in verse 4 and offers the same response in verse 5 when he says, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, who killed them, they were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here we have another event that we don't have any other information outside of Luke to compare it to. It's only Luke who tells us about it. It could have been a a construction accident where the workers were killed. It could have been a a group of bystanders who just happened to be standing where this tower was at, and then it collapsed. We don't know the details. But Jesus tells us and uses this example because it would have been common knowledge that everyone had known that this tower had fallen and collapsed and killed 18 people. And so, just like in the case of Pilate's murder of the Galileans, the people would have naturally thought to themselves That the death of these 18 was the result of God's judgment. Those 18 people, they had to do something wrong to deserve such a horrible death as to be crushed by blocks and stones. Calamities don't happen for no good reason. And in their minds, calamities were always the result of God's judgment. But Jesus uses an interesting word here to describe these victims of of this tragedy. He calls them culprits. It's sometimes translated offenders. The Greek word here literally means debtors. As in, these 18 people, they were debtors to God. They owed Him something. And God called their debt by taking their very life. But once again, Jesus responds in the same way as in verse 3, and tells them emphatically, no. No, their death wasn't the result of the judgment of God on them. Their understanding about life and death and sin and judgment is completely wrong. And ultimately, their understanding about the nature and character of God is wrong as well. Once again, he tells them, unless they repent, they will likewise perish. But what does it mean when he says, you will likewise perish? Does he mean you're going to die in the same way? Does he mean that you're going to be murdered or or crushed by falling stones? What he means here is this. If you view the murder of the Galileans as tragic, and if you look at these 18 people who were crushed to death by boulders and stones as, as something being horrific, a greater horror and a greater tragedy awaits you In eternity, if you do not repent and get right with God, it does not necessarily mean that you will die in some terrible accidents at at the hands of a murderer or anything like that, but you will suffer the eternal wrath of God for your sins if you don't repent. Our very efficient and very highly insightful federal government has just released some statistics about the death rate recently, and they've come back and told us that it's at 100%. Everyone at some point will die. For every single one of us here in this room this morning, at some point, there's not going to be a tomorrow. There's not going to be a dawn of the day. There will be that last lying down of you, and you will never rise again. Every single one of us, no matter how differently we are economically, socially, politically, physically, educationally, you name it, you name the demographic, we all share in common that we will all have our last day and our last hour and our last second at some point here on this earth. We will all draw that last breath. Our heart will beat that last time. And we will all have eternity laid out before us. None of us can escape it. It's a a, a day out there in your life that's looming on the horizon, and none of us know the when or the where or the how that day will come about. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. As J.C. Ryle once said, "Forever." is a solemn word. And so this morning, you are either living in one of two ways this morning. You are either living your life in light of eternity, or you are living your life in spite of eternity. That is to say that you have either surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you have denied yourself daily and you have taken up your cross to follow Him and you have placed all of your hope and all of your confidence and all of your faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you are eagerly awaiting your Savior to come and take you home Or you are living for yourself and you are living for this world and you have rejected God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, and you are taking the gamble that if, just if, there is an eternity ahead of you, and God, if He exists, will accept you because of the good deeds that you've done, will hopefully outweigh the bad. There are two ways to live. Are you living your life in light of eternity, or are you living your life in spite of eternity? Are you someone who is living as if you are a stranger and an alien on this earth? Or are you living as if this world is all there is? Does the hope of heaven and the eternal glories that await you have any place in your mind and in your heart? Or does this world's present temporal comforts consume more of your thoughts and your time and your pursuits? Because none of us know the manner or the time of our death but we can be confident of our destiny. Does that even remotely describe you this morning? Do you ever take God into consideration for any of the decisions that you make about your life? Do you ever have eternity in view? And does the thoughts of heaven ever occupy your heart as you go through this life? Would you begin to pray like Jonathan Edwards and ask God to stamp eternity on your eyeballs, and live your life in such a way that forever is in view. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, help us to look to eternity. Help us to bear fruit worthy of repentance, Lord. Help us to look at this world through the lens of eternity so that whatever we do, whatever we look at, whatever we engage in, Lord, that we would look to the heavenly city. We would not get caught up in the things and the cares of this world, but we might look forward to that day in which we can eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would help us in this endeavor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.